It is Thursday, November 30th, 2023, and this is Ozarks at Large. I'm Matthew Moore. Today, the prevalence of the Arkansas State butterfly is dangerously low. Because as a master naturalist, it was kind of embarrassing to find out that our state butterfly is, is at, according to Game and Fish Commission's uh, last report, the Arkansas Wildlife Action Plan in 2015, I think was the last time it was updated. And the Diana fritillary is considered at a moderate to high risk of extinction. Plus, how the media we consume affects us on a biological level. The thing that I learned the most about it was just, you know, that understanding media and understanding visual language is not an innate thing. It's a thing that we kind of pick up. And the inspiration chocolate has on music. First, the news from NPR. The group Friends of the Berryville Library is raising funds for a new library building big enough to serve the needs of its growing community. For more information on the importance of public libraries in the lives of individuals and the strength of our communities, and how you can help, berryvillelibrary.org. Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art presents the final season of Listening Forest. Guests are invited to explore an interactive world of light, sound, and wonder in this immersive nighttime experience. Open now through December 31st. Tickets at crystalbridges.org. Sona, the Symphony of Northwest Arkansas, continues its main stage season December 9th with two performances of its annual Christmas concert at Walton Arts Center. Performing a mix of holiday favorites under the baton of maestro Paul Haas, musicians will also be joined on stage by the Sona Singers and other guests. Tickets at 443-5600 or sonamusic.org. This is Ozarks at Large for Thursday, November 30th, 2023. I'm Matthew Moore. Ozarks at Large is a production of 91.3 KUAF in Fayetteville. Later on our show, a new accelerator program focusing on leadership development, communications, and fundraising is being funded by the Walmart Foundation. Paul Gatling from our partner Talk Business and Politics talks with Jesse Lane, the founder and CEO of Good Maker U. That's in our second half hour. First, the state butterfly of Arkansas is at a risk of disappearing. Ozarks at Large's Jack Travis recently spoke with Sean Hunter, a Northwest Arkansas master naturalist who co-founded the Diana Project, a grassroots program dedicated to saving the state butterfly, the Diana fritillary. She describes herself as an advocate for the voiceless. She says it's a tag she uses to drive her work advocating for species that are fundamental to our ecosystems. There's so many things, especially pollinators, that I've been learning about that uh, need so much from us, but they can't tell us, you know, and even in their way, um, you know, by disappearing or, or not being where we expect them to be. They, they're speaking, but um, they don't have as big a voice as we do. So it's just one thing I'm trying to do is speak for them. And the Diana Project is, is my big voice, I guess. So I want to get into the Diana Project, but first, maybe could you introduce our listeners to our state butterfly, the Diana fritillary, because as I've talked about this story with my coworkers, some of them aren't even aware that it, we have a state butterfly. So that's funny. Um, my co-founder, Curtis Leister, he started with this question, um, and he has a little spiel that he does, and it starts with, do you know the state butterfly of Arkansas? And about 50% of the people will say it's the monarch, and the other half don't know. 
Um, literally in, in the eight months we've been doing this, I've met one person who knew what the state butterfly was by name. So the state butterfly is the Arginus diana is the scientific name or the diana fritillary. Um, it's a huge butterfly. It's like the female can get up to four and a half inches wide. It's unique in that it's extremely, uh, the t- technical term is sexually dimorphic. So the female is blue and black and the male is actually orange and brown. So they don't even look like the same species. We found out that it was threatened because Curtis, um, he works at the BGO Botanical Garden of the Ozarks and they have the native butterfly greenhouse there in the butterfly house and that we don't have the diana in there and somebody asked curtis so it's a state butterfly and he didn't know so um once we got to digging around we found out that it is threatened with extinction in arkansas so what's threatening them well there are a lot of reasons one of the biggest reasons obviously in northwest arkansas would be urbanization um, just fragmentation of its habitat its habitat is pretty unique in that it needs moist forest habitat, um, meadow or prairie with a lot of high nectar flowers. So it needs a combination of those two things. Um, And it also needs its native, uh, the native violets, which are the host plant for the larva, um, the caterpillars. And um, it also needs leaves and twigs in the fall. So actually all winter. So there's, there's a a lot of things that challenge its uh, life cycle. And it has had um, several big challenges over the years. Um, It's been steadily declining since probably the early 1900s from agriculture, urbanization. There was a big to-do in the um, forest industry, like the pine forest industry. They had an invasive gypsy moth, and so they just broad-covered insecticide to get rid of that, and it it was bad timing, and it really put a dent in the population of the Diana. So multiple reasons. So if I understand correctly, we're in the midst of a mass extinction of winged insects. Among other things, yes, we are in that in the middle of we're losing gosh, I don't know the numbers, the statistics on mammals and and pollinators um and birds, you know, just um it's scary. If if once you get into it, like I started digging into the Diana um and why where is our butterfly? Cuz as a master naturalist, that was kind of embarrassing to find out that our state butterfly is is at, according to Game and Fish Commission's uh, last report, Arkansas Wildlife Action Plan in 2015, I think was the last time it was updated. And the Diana fritillary is considered at a moderate to high risk of extinction. And so when I read that, I was like, well, that's embarrassing as a master naturalist. And um, just as a human, it's it's terrifying to me that the things that we rely on, um, you know, to pollinate our food, to keep our planet going, um, because, you know, they really are towards the bottom of the food chain. And if we lose our pollinators, we're screwed. (laughs) We're in big trouble, almost. Absolutely. Um, So yeah, uh, and that's that's just really scary. And I guess that's what motivates me. When you start learning and digging into the research and, and seeing all the numbers, it can get really overwhelming and depressing. So for me, the Diana Project is, is one thing that I can do to overcome that, um, being afraid. Of, of where conservation has been going. Um, it feels like the more I learn, the more I recognize um, that we're heading in a good direction. I don't know if it's fast enough to save enough um, pollinators, but it feels like we're moving in the right direction. I see a lot more awareness. You're so passionate about the butterfly. Where 
where does your passion for pollinators come from? Um, gosh, I guess I, it might be because I'm, I'm so visual. I'm an artist also, um, fine art, uh, watercolor mostly. But so everything attracts my attention, um, sometimes to my detriment. But um, I, I just think that there's, for eons, people have been trying to mimic the natural world and there's a reason for that because it's just it's so amazing and and it never disappoints when you when you can just sit still and look at it um i'm also trying to do a nature journaling class so that's kind of a side gig (laughs) and and to help people because i think one of the reasons that we're so disconnected from the danger that we have put our natural world into is because we're so disconnected from it and i think that nature journaling and just sitting still and looking at something in, in peace and quiet outside is, is a big way to get people reconnected to that so they'll pay better attention. So that's kind of, I guess that's where my passion comes from, just being in nature. And yeah. it, it feels better than not being in nature. <laughs> right, right. I'm with you there. Now tell me about the Diana Project. I understand you have a three-year plan. We do. We have a three-year plan. That was kind of an arbitrary time frame that, that I could manage. Um, my own time for and that I wanted to commit at least that much time to this project sort of to give myself a goal uh, as well so in that project we're basically doing two things we're gathering people and we're gathering data Um, by gathering people we're doing um, we're offering the Diana project presentation which is a education about the Diana um, its life cycle its challenges and what people can do about it and then um, the second part of that, the gathering data, is another presentation that we're doing is the iNaturalist application, if you're familiar with that. It's um, an application you can use on your phone or your compu- computer, and you can upload observations, and it helps you identify them, which a lot of people like that part of it. But the good part about it is that once it's identified and several people agree upon it, it's actually considered scientific data. So anybody in the world that's studying that particular thing can go in and gather that data and use it. So it creates citizen scientists for everybody that gets on there. So our big plan is to have a Diana count next year during June, which is Pollinator Month. Um, Pollinator Week is June 17th through the 23rd, and we're going to do a Diana count and have as many people trained to use iNaturalist, trained to identify the Diana and hit the hit the ground, boots to the ground, um, and get as many sightings as we can across Arkansas. That's the goal. Where will you be sending people? Where will people look for the butterfly? That's a good question. Um, we have several historical location um, research papers. The last one said that the the Diana was visible in about 29 counties in Arkansas, and so we have that reference and we know their habitats so we can pick and choose maybe natural areas the Arkansas Heritage Commission has natural areas that would be prime locations state parks the Hot Springs National Park has invited us to come out and do something but one of the things I've reached out to um, the U of A entomology department and there's a program called Maxent M-A-X-E-N-T I haven't figured out how to to download it yet because it's a free um, software 
and it's in a beta form right now, but you have to have JavaScript experience, and I'm, I'm just not that, I'm not a software person. So anyways, we I have one volunteer so far from the entomology department, and she's offered to help us set it up, but we need a computer to do that. So I'm hoping to get a donation of a field computer, a laptop, you know, one of those durable ones that you can kick around in the back of a truck. And um, anyways, so that Maxent software it's you can put in the existing information like I know it's here here and here and then it will take all of the information about the environment of and and landscape temperature humidity and tell you where else you should look and you know compares those sites to other places in in the landscape you know in the boundary that you give it of Arkansas and then it can pinpoint places that we should look that's exciting so I'm hoping knock on wood that somebody will donate a computer so we can get that downloaded and then learn how to use it so once you have the count, what do you do next? That's um, that's also a good question. Um, so I've been in contact with uh, several, what I would say, um, really important people in the pollinator world of Arkansas. Uh, Nicholas Goforth is at Arkansas Game and Fish Commission. There's a lady who runs, let's see, Arkansas Monarch and Pollinator Partnership. That's a good one. And then Quail Forever. Some people that head these these departments, and I'm hoping to present them with the information that we have and say, hey, this is what we found, and we'd like to have a big push. Get me a scientist. Let's get them all organized and go out next year um, during the flight season and, and on the third year. So the third year goal is to tag, uh, to collect them, tag them, and be able to track them and see where they are and how strong the populations are. You said people often ask, what can they do to help? What can our listeners do to learn more about your efforts? Um, probably the biggest thing uh, would be if you visit our website, which is thedianaproject.org, you can find my email. You can find our social media links. Um, and we also have a list on there, um, a spreadsheet that you can download that has the some of the favored plants as listed um, by Miss Lori Spencer um, in her book, The Diana Fritillary. Well, Sean, thank you so much for all your work that you do, and thank you so much for being here today. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Sean Hunter is a master naturalist and the co-founder of The Diana Project, dedicated to the Diana Fritillary, Arkansas's state butterfly. She spoke to Ozarks at Large's Jack Travis in the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio One. The KUAF Giving Tree is excited to announce this year's beneficiary, the Yvonne Richardson Community Center. The YRCC is committed to shaping today's youth for tomorrow's challenges by providing recreational, educational, and social opportunities. Throughout the holidays, you'll learn more about the center and its needs, including pre-packaged snacks, sports equipment, coloring, and activity books, and more. The Giving Tree and KUAF Public Radio. Your voice matters. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Matthew Moore. Attorney General Tim Griffin has rejected another two proposed constitutional amendments. One of the measures proposes that all elections should be conducted by paper ballots, hand-marked, and hand-counted. The other proposes restricting who is eligible to receive an absentee ballot, how they are distributed, and how they are counted. Griffin opines that both proposed amendments contain terms that are not clearly defined and that both have overly wordy popular names. The ballot question committee supporting both of these amendments says the decision was expected and the proposals will be advised. The city of Eureka Springs is hosting its first annual home Christmas decorating contest. 
Simon Wiley is coordinating the contest and serves as the Eureka Springs Public Works Director. He says the contest promises to bring more light and tourists to town this holiday season. It's a free contest to enter. We have five categories that that you could choose from to be um, judged on. Um, The first one being a winter wonderland, which is uh, create a spectacular snowy scene with sparkling lights, shimmering icicles, and enchanting snowmen. The second would be the Hallmark Award, which is inspired by the heartwarming movies and nostalgic charm of Hallmark's Christmas specials. Number three, probably my favorite, the freaking Eureka Award for the, the bold and fearless decorators who are, are not afraid to push the boundaries of traditional holiday themes. The final two themes are Griswold and Grinch, both classic holiday movies. Homes must be decorated by December 4th. Winners will be announced on December 16th in Basin Park at 2.30 p.m. Winners will receive special recognition as best holiday home decoration in Eureka Springs. Free registration forms are available online at christmasineureka.com, where you can also find a calendar of holiday events. The Home Decorating Contest is sponsored by Black Hills Energy, which provided a grant to the city to celebrate the holidays. Time now for today's Northwest Arkansas Business Journal Report. I'm Paul Gatling. We are back after a break for the Thanksgiving holiday with plenty of news to get to, including the latest issue of the Business Journal published during Thanksgiving week. On the cover, Michael Tilley has a profile of Hivers and Strivers. That is an angel investment group that provides startup funding to companies founded by graduates of the U.S. military academies. The Washington, D.C.-based company is opening a new headquarters office in Bentonville. Also in the latest issue, details of a 95-acre master-planned community and development in Benton County by Buffington Homes. We've also got guest commentaries from Mark Zweig and Eric Dees, a new address for a Fayetteville law firm, and a statistic about construction cranes in Bentonville that may surprise you. All that and much more are in the new issue, and you can read the digital version for free at nwabusinessjournal.com. We're back with more news after the break on today's Northwest Arkansas Business Journal Report. Support for the Northwest Arkansas Business Journal Report is provided by the Arkansas State Chamber of Commerce and Associated Industries of Arkansas. The Chamber's mission is to promote a pro-business, free enterprise agenda and prevent legislation, regulation, and rules that hinder business. More at ArkansasStateChamber.com. Arkansas Blue Cross and Blue Shield. For more than 70 years, Arkansas Blue Cross and Blue Shield has used its knowledge and compassion to create healthcare solutions for individuals and businesses. Arkansas Blue Cross and Blue Shield. Live fearless. More information at ArkansasBlueCross.com. First Security is proud to be only in Arkansas, and it shows in your banking experience. They offer smart solutions for personal and business banking, plus convenient services and community investment. That's because First Security is 100% focused on serving customers all across the state and nowhere else. It's local banking with local commitment. First Security. Bank better. Member FDIC. Equal housing lender. The Walmart Foundation is backing an accelerator program aimed at raising the impact of nonprofits in Northwest Arkansas. 
The Jones Center in Springdale and Bentonville consulting firm Goodmaker U are partners on this new initiative. It is called Raise NWA, and it will provide a 14-month training to 20 nonprofit leaders from 10 local organizations focusing on leadership development, communications, and fundraising. The goal is to empower nonprofits in Benton and Washington counties to navigate the evolving philanthropic landscape. Jesse Lane is Goodmaker U's founder and chief executive. We spoke this week about the program and about his organization. What is Goodmaker U? All right, uh, Jesse, it's great to visit with you, and congratulations uh, on the program launch this week. We'll get into some of those details um, in a moment. But first, you know, what is Goodmaker U? You know, I confess I was not familiar with this group um, when it came across my desk. So just briefly, what is Goodmaker U? What is the work that you do, and, and who do you do it for? Sure. Well, we're excited uh, to share. You know, because nonprofit leaders who we work with, they're some of the most amazing people in our community. You know, they're, they've decided to dedicate their lives to solving some of the community and the world's largest problems. They have huge vision, and, you know, they're making a huge impact, but oftentimes they have tiny budgets, right? They don't have the resources they need. If you ask a nonprofit leader, typically the number one uh, roadblock for them is funding. And so because they don't have enough funds uh, and they are so busy, uh, they don't have the time or the skills they need sometimes to fundraise, and these amazing people start getting stressed out and worn out and, and eventually burn out. And so that's not good for the organization. That's not good for the community when we see some of our best people uh, getting worn out and burned out and leaving uh, these great organizations. So at Goodmaker U, we come alongside these nonprofit leaders who we call good makers, and we're training them in leadership and uh, digital strategy and fundraising also, uh, they can raise the funds they need, have the confidence they need, and the margin they need to uh, grow their organization, impact the community, and really just enjoy their life again and, and stick around and continue to serve our community the way they do. Right. And, and uh, this program you announced this week, um, it's called Raise NWA, funded by the Walton Family Foundation, also involves the Jones Center. Um, what are the most important details about that you want nonprofits to know? Why is this something they should be interested in? Yeah, well, we're excited. This is a really comprehensive program, uh, thanks to the partnership between the Jones Center and the Walmart Foundation. Walmart and Foundation. so it is, yeah, it is going to be a 14-month uh, a program kicking off in January. We're accepting applications right now. And uh, the applications close on December 15th, but the program is going to cover leadership development, communications. It's going to help nonprofits think about how to do individual development or fundraising, reaching out to their donor base, their community, and engaging them in new ways so that the giving increases in really uh, exciting, organic ways. And so that's what the, the program is all about. It's teaching them to tell their story uh, get it out there, raise awareness so that they get the support they need. Right. Uh, you mentioned that selection process. I think you're taking um, 20 nonprofit uh, leaders uh, from 10 mm -hmm. organizations. It's a 14th month program. Um, 
What's that selection process like? You know, I have to tell you, we have many nonprofits in Bend and Washington counties, and many of them are likely interested in this program. It's at no cost to them. Uh, so what is an ideal nonprofit to go through the RAISE NWA program? How are you going to be selecting these 10 organizations? Sure, that's a great question. We have a committee of people that are going to be considering their application, looking at a handful of different things. I mean, one, we just want these organizations to uh, be set up for success, right? And it's, so not all nonprofits fit uh, the model that, that really works well for some of the training. So maybe they're, they receive a huge percentage of their funds from, uh, from the government. That, which they should still apply, but that may make it a little more difficult for them to make a, a, a big transition. Or maybe the nonprofit is just non-traditional in how they get revenue. They're selling products instead of raising funds. So we kind of want to see a little bit of proven success, but also a huge potential for a future. And then, of course, we're looking at the impact that this will have on our community if they grow their capacity to get to fundraise, if they raise the more funds, what is that actually going to do for Northwest Arkansas? And so that's some of the questions that we're asking. And then there's other considerations too, just how long they've been around, their team, uh, do they have, uh, you know, the skill sets they need and the team they need to execute on what we're teaching them. And so there's a, a whole lot of things that we're considering in our rubric as we look at all these applications. And we've got such a great nonprofit community here, so there's no doubt it's going to be a difficult process to narrow yeah. it down. And that is Jesse Lane, the founder and CEO of Goodmaker U. That's a Bentonville consulting firm that works with nonprofits. Goodmaker U is partnering with the Jones Center for a 14-week accelerator program to benefit area nonprofit groups. You can learn more about that at goodmakeru.com/nwa. We've also got details now at nwabusinessjournal.com. In other news this week, we've also published a couple of stories at nwabusinessjournal.com about the Buffalo River. Public response has been swift and disapproving when it came to light that there are conversations being had about redesignating the Buffalo River as a national park preserve in order to attract more visitors. A real estate redevelopment project that proposes to introduce a mixed-use facility with nearly 300 residential units and 70,000 square feet of office space is beginning its journey through the Bentonville Development Pipeline. The Planning Commission recently considered a waiver request for what is dubbed a remote work hub at 602 North Walton Boulevard. The waiver has to do with parking. The proposed development will return to the Planning Commission as a large-scale development at a later date. Blue Crane, the real estate acquisition and development arm of Runway Group in Bentonville, is leading that project. And a year after posting a $6.2 million profit, the University of Arkansas Athletics Department broke even for the fiscal year that ended June 30th. According to the university's annual Equity and Athletics Disclosure Act survey, the Athletics Department's revenue totaled $171.1 million. That's up about 11% from the previous fiscal year. Expenses were also the same amount, and that was up a little more than 15% from a year ago. I'm Paul Gatling, and that's the Northwest Arkansas Business Journal Report. Until next time, thanks for listening.
This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Matthew Moore. Film and television makes us feel things. And I don't just mean that as an idiom. There's data to back that up. Walter Hickey is the author of the book, You Are What You Watch, How Movies and TV Affect Everything. His day job is thinking about the intersection of data and pop culture, and he says he hopes that his journalism and research can lend credence to pop culture reporting, which some may view as unimportant. I think that the perception is wrong. I think that the the biggest thing in my career that I've kind of realized increasingly is that uh, pop culture has a fundamental effect on people. Uh, it is scientifically measurable. It is uh, economically perceptible. It, you, you can see it in many different kinds of ways. And I think that any time that it gets dismissed, I, I don't really think that that is coming from a place of knowledge or sincerity. I am a data journalist by trade. And so the cool thing that I like about data journalism is that I think for all kinds of reporting, data journalism can help uh, really illuminate and, and and kind of bring forward evidence that might convince someone who's skeptical. I think that the media is understandably at times seen as less trustworthy than they maybe have been in other times throughout history. And the good thing about data journalism is that data can reach folks who come in with a point of skepticism and by laying the groundwork with data and and, and as objective as one can get information, uh, can you can c- convince someone uh, that, to, that you're worth listening to and that you're worth hearing out. Your book is broken down into different ways that culture impacts humans, from how it affects our bodies physiologically, how it reflects the way we interact with one another, to how it fuels our economy. Let's start by talking about, this was something that really kind of interested me in this kind of opening part of your book, the galvanic skin response measurement. (laughs) What is that? How does it work? And what can it tell us? Yeah, so uh, all, bi- all all animals, many plants, you know, any biological organism, deals with electricity in in some way, shape, or form. And bioelectricity is this really fun topic of biology that people have been studying for you know decades. There's some really fascinating research going as far back as the 1800s about how electricity interacts with biological systems. GSR is very very simple, which is that when you feel emotionally intense, uh, when your fight or flight reflex is, is, is encouraged, when you feel strong emotional volatility, when you feel very strongly about something happening in front of you, as a evolutionary precaution, because we are mammals, one way that your body reacts is that the sweat on your palms, on these little tiny, tiny pores that you'd never see, gets a little bit more intense. Uh, that is a, you know, that is just because we are mammals, that is what we do. And galvanic skin response is is a really fun way to kind of gauge that intensity, because what it does is it basically you you would append two different uh, electrodes onto your body and run a small current basically between them. And, you know, typically your body, your skin's not perfectly conductive, so you'll lose some of that electricity between one and the other. But when you're when you have that emotional reaction and you have a little bit more sweat in your palm, more of that electricity gets through. And so we're able to kind of track your emotional valence over time using that galvanic skin response. And the best way that people might know about this is that is one of the tests in a polygraph test. So in addition to, you know, your, your, uh, your pulse and other different factors that they're measuring, they're measuring your, your GSR. And from a scientific perspective, we can use this to, to kind of get insights into the actual latent feelings of what people are going through when they watch a movie. And so, you know, uh, very basically just built a bunch of these devices, 
sent them to a few friends, uh, made a list of movies that I'd like them to watch if they get a, ch- a chance, and and uh, and then just was able to kind of figure out the underlying emotional structure of some of these films using this technology. And uh, it, it was one of my favorite things to do, just because the whole point of that chapter is that movies aren't just visual experiences. They're not just audio experiences. They are things that your body interacts with fundamentally, whether that's what's the chemical reactions going inside of you, whether that's your nervous system deliberately or not. These are things that are engaging your entire bodily structure. And that makes them cool. That makes them interesting. That makes them the things that, that we already have things that that change your body's reaction. And we call them pharmaceuticals and we take them very seriously. And so as a result, I think that, you know, one fun thing about that experiment was just kind of illustrating how important some of the stuff is and how much it actually changes, uh, you know, ha- how your body reacts to things. One of the things that really interests me about your research is is the interaction with kids and media. And you, you spend some time talking about kids and their viewing habits. What were some of the biggest surprises for you when it comes to how kids consume media? Yeah, uh, this was such a fun section to write about just because there's been a lot of research into how different kids at different ages consume and interact with media. And one of my favorite parts of it was that I got a chance to talk to the people who actually make it. I talked to folks who work in kids TV, whether they're directors, producers, or, or any other kind of position. And so, like, I guess, like, the one surprising thing that, I, that I'll hit first is that between, you know, I, I don't know exactly how old you are, but, you know, we seem to be very similar ages. And the difference between how much thought went into kids TV when we were kids, when you know, potentially, you know, 25, 30 years ago, and the amount of thought that goes in today is is night and day. You had an entire generation kind of grow up in that Fred Rogers ecosystem, in that PBS ecosystem, and they realized how much power they had to actually help kids you know, perceive and understand their world through media. And so there's so much thought that goes into kids TV right now, um, particularly the stuff that you'll see from from the networks and, and, and from more established figures. And I think like the thing that I learned the most about it was just, you know, that understanding media and understanding visual language is not an innate thing. It's a thing that we kind of pick up. We learn things about how we watch things by watching them. Uh, So a young kid might watch a show and just kind of look all over the screen because they're trying to take everything in. Whereas a slightly older kid, well, okay, I know that I'm supposed to be looking at the person who's talking or, oh, I'm supposed to be looking at the person that's gesturing in this direction or that direction. Uh, One of my favorite things was, um, I was talking to folks who worked on Daniel Tiger and they told me some interesting things about just how time works in Daniel Tiger, which is that they never do a, like a cut and then there's a clock on the wall and it advances a little while and then they do a cut back to and it's dark out, right? Now you and I would understand that means that, oh, a couple hours have elapsed and now it's the same place, but it's nighttime. And they were just like, that's that's an idiom. Kids don't understand that. There's no inherent understanding that, oh, I'm going to look at a clock, it's going to turn, and then we're going to go back and it's nighttime. So all episodes of Daniel Tiger, they explained to me, basically take place in real time, that they take place over the course of 20 minutes of this kid's life. And if there are changes, you know, they're separated by a song or they're separated by uh, like, like a break and that kind of thing so that because kids just kind of lack the ability to understand the intuitive shifting of time when they're watching something like this. So it's just like, you know, understanding temporal reasoning of five-year-olds is a thing that is happening now that maybe wasn't happening when when, when we were growing up. 
In the commerce section of your book, you take a detailed look at the impact of intellectual property within the film and TV industry. There's there's merchandising through collectible items like Funko Pop figurines, and there's you know this whole world now that involves spinoff series and sequels and prequels and reboots, and it's a mentality that we're seeing a lot from Disney. Uh, as you consider the data points around intellectual property, what sticks out to you the most about the current trends in that world? Yeah, it's such a good question. So the chapter kind of traces, the, that, that chapter in particular traces the intersection of commerce and pop culture, uh, which has always been the case. It, it has been rather rare that people, you know, make mass media consumption elements for you know the just merely the act of doing it there's always you know the, the the fact that this is the industry that it is 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 a reflection of how much people care about it and it, how much it really means to a lot of folks and as it kind of pertains to our current era one of my favorite stories was kind of telling how we got here when it came to just how big merchandise around pop culture is. It was, you know, a niche in the 60s, and then it had kind of grown, but it was only for kids. And then you see this real revolution in the 90s that I dive into, that all of a sudden pop culture merchandise that had traditionally only been for children, all of a sudden starts selling to adults and selling to people who had not been a market there before. And then once that Pandora's box is open, all of a sudden you're looking at you know what would have just been a movie that came out is now a movie that then has a clothing line that then has a leg set accompanying uh line that you where you can pick the ravenclaw set versus the slytherin set and, and you know basically diving into interlocking one's own identity with what pop culture speaks to them it's kind of taking what had been the sports way of following uh, media where I am a New York Giants fan. And so I will own their, their memorabilia and I will, oh, I'll see a Patriots guy across the screen and yeah, I beat you. And then I'll see an Eagles guy across the street and that I don't like him. And it, it, it takes that and brings it to media and it makes it into a tribalistic setting and not just something that one enjoys for, for its own sake. Um, I think that that's the biggest thing that's going on now and where it become such an integral part of people's identities for better and for worse. And I do mean for better because again, seeing yourself on screen can really mean something and seeing representation of a, of a life that you haven't chosen yet on screen could make you choose the life. And there's a lot of good stuff that comes out of people immersing their identity into pop culture, but there's a lot of other stuff. And, and I think that uh, understanding how that influences people and what that means for, for us as a society is a, is a question that I, that I get out of the book, but I, we're still finding out the answers every day, man. <laughs> the setup for this is there's a user on TikTok who has a series of videos where she plays rap and hip hop songs from the early 2000s. And uh, the example in this video is a T-Pain song. And uh, the text box on the video, uh, she's she's got headphones on, she's up close to a microphone, and the text box on the video says, NPR in the year 2109. That was the chart-shattering I'm in love with a stripper by the artist <laughs> T-Pain in the key of A-flat major. A love ballad that takes us on an emotional journey with a man who is both fascinated and quite titillated by a dancer he meets <laughs> at a strippy, as some call it. As we think about... 2109, in an era where we are creating more cultural content than ever before, how do you imagine we will look back on culture and say 2109? 
It's a really pertinent question. And what I liked about reporting the book was that I tried to take a little bit of a historical view. You know, when you're doing a book, I, I'm an internet writer, first and foremost. I've This is my first dead tree thing ever. I'm, I'm very happy with it. But it presented challenges for me just because I'm very accustomed to coming up with an idea and being able to publish it within a week or two, if that's what schedules demand. So where this was a project that, you know, from conception to publication, you're talking four years. And so I tried to make it as durable as possible when I was writing it. And they oftentimes retreated into historical analysis for that purpose. One thing that I really liked about this book was that, you know, you can look at various different eras of history and see reverberations and echoes of what's going on today. You know, if you looked at the silent film era, a lot of times film is considered is always like now we look back, it's like, oh, film is a medium. Film is a, a way of expressing yourself. Film is a, is, a, is a distribution mechanism. But like back then, film was a technology. It was a new technology. It was the intersection of several new technologies from the development of, of you know, celluloid, from the development of, of, you know, lighting, from the development of photography and, and different kinds of fast photography. And you know, at that point, it was kind of a gadget. And so if you look at the earliest films, they're like, let's see what this thing can do. And a lot, you know, then they're like, oh, well, we can actually, you know, make it pan, we can make it zoom, we can do this, and that. we can film this happening, we can be have direction involved, we can have cuts, we can do and you can kind of watch the medium develop between the 1890s and, and the 1930s and the industry develop around it. And you can see people trying new things. And you can also see echoes of that today, which is like, you know, you see YouTube emerges as a, as a as a medium. You can see podcasts emerge as a medium. And if you look back to early film, it's like, okay, what are the first things that people do with these mediums? Well, first they try to scare each other. Uh, they try to make spooky things, and they try to use this medium to to, to get a good scare out of things, right? Uh, what they do pranks, they do uh, you know stunts. They you have Buster Keaton and you have Jake Paul, and they're kind of doing very similar stuff. You look at basically people just take this thing for a ride until eventually it develops. Develops as 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 a mature technology, and so I think that you know when when you're looking at the the, the user made culture that we have today, or even the independently made culture that we have today, I like that you're seeing much as we saw with the onset of early film, new genres emerge. Uh, one thing that I've been citing because uh, I've had a few conversations with folks in digital culture is you know it wasn't until digital culture and digital distribution mechanisms that we had things like Dungeons and Dragons actual plays become a not only a viable medium, but like sell out crowds. And that took the intersection of a distribution mechanism, a niche audience, and then time to kind of develop into what it is. But that would have never happened through traditional media. You needed this kind of new distribution mechanism to accomplish it. And so like, we're going to see, I think, new genres form, new style of storytelling form. And it's going to be exciting. And it's going to be spooky and scary at times, but it's, it's going to be fun. And then you're also kind of going to see genres go in and out of fashion. Like, you know, superheroes have have kind of come, really arrived. I don't think that they're going anywhere for a while, but I think that you're seeing them mature as a genre in sim similar ways that the Western genre did. And so uh, I, I'm very intrigued by what kind of happens. And, and as we kind of try to, you know, put our finger on the pulse of what's going on, it's just like, you know, all of this has happened before, it'll happen again. And uh, we, we all kind of get to play our part and we, and we get our thing and it, it's, it's going to be kind of fun to go for the ride. This is an extremely expansive book. You've covered so much, and it's really just like a, a delightful read. It's a very colorful read, um, and I, I really appreciated that. Uh, as I started to dig into it, I almost felt daunted by how much there was, and as I started to read through it, I'm just like, this is data journalism meets pop culture meets just like a joy to look through. That means so much. 
that's what I was going for. And that just means so, that's just such a like affirmation for me to hear. So thank you. Thank you for, for saying so. It, it was a, it was an exciting project. It was a challenging project. I had so much fun writing it. I hope that that comes out in the book. Uh, but yeah, no, thank you so much for having me on. This is a real delight. <laughs> Walter Hickey is the author of You Are What You Watch. We spoke over Zoom earlier this month. This is Leah Uribe, Professor of Music and Associate Dean at the University of Arkansas Fulbright College of Arts and Sciences, expanding our musical boundaries with sound perimeter. The origin of chocolate can be traced back to ancient Mesoamerican civilizations, particularly the Olmec, Maya, and Aztec cultures. These civilizations cultivated and consumed cocoa beans, the primary ingredient in chocolate. When Spanish explorers arrived in the Americas in the early 16th century, they encountered cocoa and brought it back to Europe. Initially, chocolate remained a beverage, but over time, sugar was added to sweeten it, and the process of making solid chocolate evolved. By the 19th century, developments in chocolate production led to the creation of the solid chocolate bars and confections that we are more familiar with today. Chocolate has been an inspiration to many artists and composers, including our opening one, Piotr Ilyich Tchaikovsky, who wrote Chocolate Spanish Dance as part of the second act of his very famous ballet, The Nutcracker. The Nutcracker is a ballet about an adventure taken on by a young girl, Clara, and a life-size Nutcracker that has come to life. Together, they travel to mystical lands while battling the Mouse King. One of these trips is to the land of sweets, where the return of the prince is celebrated with international flavors. Coffee from Arabia, tea from China, candy canes from Russia, and chocolate from Spain. Let us continue listening to Chocolate Spanish Dance, interpreted by the London Symphony Orchestra under the baton of Sir Charles McCarris. That was Chocolate Spanish Dance from the Nutcracker Ballet, second act by Russian composer Piotr Ilyich Tchaikovsky. Stacey Garrop is a full-time freelance American composer based in the Chicago area. Her music covers a wide range of genres, including opera, oratorio, orchestra, wind ensemble, choir, art song, chamber ensembles, and works for solo instruments. Garrop has been also enchanted by chocolate. In 2021, she was commissioned a solo piece for saxophone by Joseph Luloff. In conversations between the composer and the performer, the subject of food became common, which prompted the creation of Sweet Tooth, a work inspired by desserts. The third movement of this piece, 
Chocolate lava cake is a study of contrast, light versus dense, sweet versus bitter, and everything else encountered in this delicious chocolate concoction. saxophonist Joseph Luloff interpreting Stacey Garrop's chocolate lava cake from a live performance and world premiere in September of 2023. We end some perimeter today with another piece inspired by the sweetness of chocolate, the Bambuco Cacao by Colombian composer Juan Carlos Guio. A bambuco is a Colombian traditional dance that highlights sweet melodies and syncopated rhythms. Let us listen to Irene Gomez performing this beautiful piece. 
This is Leah Uribe, Professor of Music and Associate Dean at the University of Arkansas Fulbright College of Arts and Sciences, expanding our musical boundaries with Sound Pinimeter. Sound Pinimeter is a show written and hosted by me and produced by Sophia Nurani in KUAF 91.3 in Fayetteville, Arkansas. This segment is dedicated to diverse voices in and around music. I hope it will expand your knowledge and connection to inclusive sounds and let music infiltrate your lives and transform your realities. Have a sweet and chocolatey day. Ozarks at Large is a production of 91.3 KUAF Public Radio. Contributors today included Jack Travis, Jacqueline Froelich, Paul Gatling, and Leah Uribe. Sophia Narani produces Sound Perimeter. Today's show was produced in the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio 2. I'm Matthew Moore. Thanks for being with us today. It's time for the KUAF and Friends Holiday Giveaway, your chance to win a gift from one of many generous KUAF underwriters, including Hillberry Music Festival, Spaceberry Music Festival, Opal Agafia's Ozark Mountain Soul, and more. 
Winners announced December 8th during the noon edition of Ozarks at Large. Details and registration at KUAF.com. Walton Arts Center's Starlight Jazz Club presents Tierney Sutton, Saturday, December 2nd. This jazz vocalist and producer is known for her arrangements, scatting, and swinging style, and will play alongside her trio with a selection of traditional jazz arrangements and holiday tunes. Tickets at waltonartscenter.org.